Morning. Okay, we're going to continue on in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, our 2 Corinthians, we already finished the other one. Um, the second book of Corinthians, I, I try to do this brief recap because uh, it's important to know these things, but I'm trying to make it more brief every week. I don't know if I'm succeeding, but I'm trying to. Uh, so I'll try to make this quick and catch you up. Um, Paul spent a lot of time with these people. He established this church uh, and spent 14 or 15 months with them and became very close to them. Uh, they became friends like family, some of them like family to him. And when he felt like they were where they needed to be, when he felt like they could be uh, stable on their own, he left. But then he finds out uh, not too much far, uh, farther down the line that they had, they had gotten in trouble again. They started being immature, spiritually immature. They were getting self-righteous. They were... I mean, they, they had let the influence of the Greco-Romans around them influence their, their faith, and they just became kind of a train wreck. So he writes this first letter, and then thinking that that letter would make a difference, he stopped to visit them, and it didn't. It actually got worse. A lot of the false teachers had came in and turned a lot of the people against Paul, and so he realized the first letter didn't do a lot of damage. So he started working on another letter uh, so that he could try to get things corrected before he came back again. Now, there were actually four letters written, but only two were inspired, and the one we're reading today, uh, or studying out of today, is the second of the two. Uh, in this second letter, he's mainly defending himself against all of the, uh, the false accusations from the false prophets, uh, and trying to get their, their minds right, get them back in, in, in line where they were before. So today, uh, Paul's going to continue with comparisons between his qualifications and the qualifications of all the false teachers. So uh, I titled today's message, A Pedigree of Persecution. Okay, that's about as quick as I can get through it. That wasn't bad, was it? You guys are going, what am I supposed to say? Okay, so last week Paul started off. This, I love how chapter 11 starts because Paul had enough. He was at that point where he's like, I'm not messing with you anymore. I'm just going to tell you what I think to the false apostles and false teachers. So he was real sarcastic last week, and he starts off by saying, oh, just put up with my foolishness. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, I hope you will put up with a little more of my foolishness. Please bear with me. He was saying that because the false teachers and the false prophets were telling people that his teaching was foolish, that it, well, there was no power in it, and that he was just speaking the words of the fools. So he was being sarcastic, going, well, then let the fool say a few more things. And you could tell he'd had enough. This week he continues with that, and he's just as sarcastic as he was last week, but he continues to make comparisons. So we'll start in verse 16. It says, again, I say, don't think that I'm a fool to talk like this, but even if you do... Uh, listen to me as you would a foolish person while I, uh, while I also boast a little. Such boasting, pay attention to this, such boasting is not from the Lord, but I am acting like a fool. And since others boast about their human adventure, uh, achievements, I will too. So the Corinthians followed these false teachers mainly because they believed their boasting. They had become so self-righteous, these false teachers, that they were trying to dress the part. They were trying... Uh, to, they, they bragged about themselves and about their special relationship with God. And they were telling them that there was a higher, uh, a higher plane you could reach with God. And they had reached it, Paul Hatton, and neither had anyone else. And so somehow they just fell into all this boasting and they believed it. And last week Paul actually mocked them for saying that. Last week Paul called them super apostles because he was like, well, I'm not as good as your super apostles. He was very, very sarcastic through this letter. But he acknowledged that the boasting that they were doing was wrong. But this week, he basically was saying, okay, if we're going to play that game, I'll boast. We can, I'll, I'll share some of my accomplishments too. But he said, I just want you to know, God doesn't promote boasting and self-promotion. 
Okay, that's not from God. I'm doing this basically to fight fire with fire is what he's saying. It's kind of like what it says in Proverbs 26. It says, answer a fool with his own what? Is it not up there? Okay. <laughs> answer a fool. Answer a fool with his own stupidity. Uh, or he will think he is wise. So basically that, that what it's saying in Proverbs is if somebody's coming at you with foolishness, go back at them with their own foolishness and, so they don't think that they actually have a valid argument. Now in verses 19 through 21, Paul gets real salty and he starts implying that they must just enjoy being in the company of fools. Look at this, starting in verse 19. He says, after all, you think you are so wise, but you enjoy putting up with fools. You put up with it when it when uh, someone enslaves you, takes everything you have, takes advantage of you, takes control of everything, and slaps you in the face. I am ashamed to say that we've been too weak to do that. But whatever, uh, whatever they dare to boast about, I'm talking like a fool again. I dare to boast about it too. So basically he's saying, um, it's kinda, it kind of stings the way he said it. Basically he's saying, you think you're so smart that you let your guard down. And when you let your guard down, you allowed these boastful teachers to sell their lies to you and creep in and deceive you, and now you can sit and listen to my boast. If you want to listen to someone boast, I'll boast and listen to mine because mine are true. So Paul pointed something out. He says, hey, listen, you know what? You let your guard down. If you would have stayed in the Word of God, you would have seen these guys were idiots right away, and you wouldn't have followed them, but you didn't. You let your guard down. They knew how to talk to you and make you feel important, so now you're following idiots is basically what he's saying. Uh, and these prophets, as soon as they saw that they had people hooked into following them, they started taking full advantage of it, right? Because here's what happened. Those people fell into the age-old trap of following a man rather than following God. And I'm telling you, that happens all the time. And the enemy knows that when we start trusting the words of man more than the words of God, he knows he has us. He knows he has us. Because as long as we're focused on following a man or following people, we can't be focused on God. We can't follow both, right? And again, this is how so many cults get their start, by people trusting men over the Word of God. You will hardly ever find a cult that began uh, with someone doing something right and giving the credit to God. It's always somebody that's trying to get the credit themselves and get attention brought to themselves. So the false teachers, uh, they have a plot, but it's going to kind of backfire on them. The, the false apostles accuse Paul of being too weak in person. See, when Paul wrote the letter... He wrote a harsh letter. And the whole purpose he wrote harsh letters was he's like, let me get all this out in the open now so you can fix it so when I come and see you, it won't be a battle between us. So he wasn't being harsh to be the keyboard tough guy like you see now. <laughs> he was being harsh ahead of time so that they could get, get their stuff together before he got there. But what the false prophets did was they took a hold of that and said, oh, yeah, he talks big when he writes letters. When he comes here, he's all sweet and he's all nice. So they were saying he was too weak in person to be an apostle. And in verse 21, once again, Paul responds to their accusation. He's very sarcastic. Basically, he said, if being a strong apostle requires I be like you, then I'm happy to be weak, is basically what he's saying. If I have to act the way you act in order to be considered a strong apostle, then just consider me weak. I don't want to act the way you act, right? So in the next few verses, Paul's going to compare their boast with his own. And this is where it gets pretty cool. So starting in verse 22. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him for, uh, far more. I have worked harder, 
been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. So Paul goes through this checklist uh, of things these false, these false apostles were bragging about, right? And he responds to each boast by announcing that everything they claimed to be, they were claiming to be, but he really was. So he came back at them. It was really good. First, he's, uh, he bragged about being, they bragged about being Hebrews. Okay, they said that they were Hebrews. Paul responded by saying, so am I. I'm no less a Hebrew than any of you. And then the second thing they claimed was that they were Israelites. Now, that's different than Hebrew. Because when they call someone an Israelite, uh, it implied that they were uh, one of the people in Israel's status of, chosen, of the chosen people of God. So when you called someone an Israelite, you were saying that they had a special relationship uh, as God's chosen people in that nation, in this nation, and they were claiming to be part of that nation. Uh, so basically, the false apostles were claiming that we are God's chosen people. And Paul just says, so am I, right? Then the third claim they had was that uh, they were the seed of Abraham. Again, Paul responded by saying, so am I. Now, this expression emphasizes the promise and the covenant between God and Abraham, right? Uh, the fourth claim of the false apostles was that they were ministers of Christ. This is where it gets kind of funny because they claim to be ministers of Christ, which is ironic because Paul described them as the total opposite when he described them uh, in chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. He actually called them servants of Satan. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 11:13. 13. It says, these people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ, but I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no wonder that his servants, talking about those false apostles, that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, uh, and the end of the day will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. So Paul came right back there saying, well, we are servants of Christ. And he's like, really? You guys are servants of Satan is who you're servants of. So in every way, Paul said, every claim you make, I can make it. But the, when I make it, it's true. See, the false apostles and the false prophets made big claims. Paul lived a big life. They said they were righteous. Paul lived righteous. They said that they would make sacrifices for the people Paul lived it. He made sacrifices for the people. It's been my experience. I don't know about you, but if you are living a spiritual life, you don't have to brag about it. People know. Right? If, you're, if you have a, a good relationship with God, you don't have to walk up and brag to people that you have it. People will see it in how you talk and what you do and how you treat others. It becomes obvious when someone has a close relationship with God. If someone, As a matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. If someone keeps pushing it and pushing it, I question them. If they're constantly telling me how righteous they are and constantly putting other people down, in my mind, I'm like, who are you trying to convince? Are you trying to convince me or are you trying to convince yourself? And this is basically what Paul was telling them. He's like, listen, you brag about it, I lived it. Now, these next challenges Paul mentioned he faced in ministry are just, just about unmatched. 2 Corinthians 11.23, he says, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. I don't know about you guys, when I read this, I think, do I really have a complaint? Does anybody else think that when they read this stuff? Because if you get mad about something and you're like, God, why is this happening? Then I read this and I'm going, okay, maybe it wasn't that bad after all. Uh, verse 24, five different times Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea, I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. 
I have faced danger from my own people, uh, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, in the seas. Uh, and I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. So Paul just comes out with a plethora here of, of comparisons they can't even, they can't even uh, relate to. So in, in 23, he speaks in generalities. But in verses 24 through 28, he gets very specific. In verse 23, he said that he'd been imprisoned and whipped and faced death several times. That's very general. But when he got specific, the Corinthians and the false apostles had to realize that he had more passion than he did. He said he was beaten five times by the Jewish leaders and given 39 lashes each time. The Mosaic law said that no one could receive more than 40 lashes. I mean, that's a very liberal law, isn't it? No one could, relieve more th uh, could receive more than 40 lashes when they're beat. So the Jews, in their typical self-righteous fashion, set it up to where, okay, when we beat you, we'll only give you 39. Oh, thanks, guys. Thank you. Uh, by the time you get to 39, I just turn around and go, go ahead. Why not? You know, 39. And you've got to understand what these lashes were. Uh, you always hear about the brutality of the Romans, and they were brutal. But these Jewish guards were brutal also. And many times when they would whip people, it would tear the flesh open in their back. It would tear muscles in their back, right? Sometimes people would be maimed from being beat, sometimes paralyzed, sometimes they would die. This wasn't like they took a ping pong paddle and swatted them in the tail. That's not what was happening here, right? They were brutally, brutally beating them 39 times. Some people didn't even live through that. Uh, then he says three times he was beaten with rods, which he's referring to the Romans because the Romans were famous for beating people with rods, and they were brutal too. But when they did this to Paul, it's funny though, when they beat Paul, they made a mistake. Paul was a Roman citizen. They weren't allowed to beat him. He had to be gone through a whole trial. He had to have representation. But they didn't know he was a Roman citizen, and they beat him anyway. But listen to this in Acts 16.37. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in, a public, uh, in public without trial, men who are Roman, and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly. No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. So Paul called them out. He was beaten by the Romans three times brutally with rods, and they had no, no right to do that. Now, it also says that he was stoned. What happened was an angry Jewish mob came after him when he was in Lystra, and when they would stone someone to death, it was a brutal death. I mean, they would take rocks and throw it at you until you died. I mean, pretty, pretty harsh. They just kept throwing rocks and hitting. They'd throw at your face, your whole body. It was a brutal, brutal death, and it took a long time sometimes. You know, I'd say at least bring the people with good arms in so somebody could take me out quick, right? My luck, I'd have people going, mm -hmm, and it'd take like three days. Oh, my gosh, hang me, you know? But they stoned him. And the only way they stoned people in Israel was to stone them to death. There was no stoning right to the point of death. Luckily, no one checked his pulse. No one came to check and see if he was dead. Because if they, they just assumed he was dead, if they would have checked his pulse and found out he was still alive, they would have stayed and finished the job. So this was God protecting him. Now it says he was shipwrecked three times and spent a night and a day adrift at sea. 
I was thinking when I read this, and maybe it's just my morbid sense of humor, after the first time getting shipwrecked, I'm not getting on a ship. What do you think? Would you guys? You know what I mean? Three times this guy was shipwrecked. Maybe after the second one, you say, okay, I'm done with boats. After the third one, I'd say, you deserve it. You got on the dang boat again. I bet the people on the Titanic wouldn't take another ship, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> Same thing. But anyway, he was shipwrecked three times, and he spent a day, adrift, a day and a night adrift at sea. Uh, and that would have been a dangerous situation in and of itself, being adrift, because uh, the seas in that area, you could have a storm rise up in seconds. It could be totally calm, and in seconds it could be raging seas and high waters and high winds because the way the winds came down in that valley where the water was. It was dangerous to be on that sea in a boat, let alone adrift at sea. Uh, even just traveling from city to city was dangerous uh, and even life-threatening for Paul because he had to face robbers. See, it was, there were well-known robbers on those trails. They knew when people would travel from Jerusalem to anywhere, they had to go through dark areas with valleys where they could lay and wait for them. So it was dangerous anyway to travel uh, like that in those, in those desert areas, but it was especially dangerous for Paul because not only did he have to face the normal criminals and robbers on that road, but there were also Jewish and Gentile enemies trying to kill him, laying in wait all over the place. They were hoping to trap him and kill him. They, he had a contract on him for probably the whole time he was in ministry. God just protected him. Uh, he had to fear persecution. He says he feared persecution everywhere he went to share God's word. He never got to go into a town without resistance, ever. Every time Paul shared the gospel, he had to go through heck to get it out. And it was his own people, first and foremost. The people who should have known everything he was saying was true were the very ones that were trying to kill him. They were trying to get him put in prison. They were trying to get him beaten. They were trying to get him crucified, trying to get him killed. Every city he went into, that's what he went through. Now, these false apostles didn't have to go through any of that. Because all they did was sit and brag about their good deeds. They didn't actually live it. Paul was saying, if you want to talk about dedication, I'm not going to talk about dedication with you, but I think I've shown it by the way I live. I'll tell you what, if you want people to trust you and trust what you're saying about Jesus, you can talk to your blue in the face. It's not going to convince them. It's not going to convince them. But what does convince them is when they see your life. The best witness you have to an unbelieving world is a good life of a believer. Showing them the love of Christ. I, I, I don't know what you guys think about this, but it feels like to me we've entered an era of Christianity where we're looking for more reasons to exclude than we are looking for reasons to pull people in. We're looking for reasons to battle and fight. That, you hear me say this all the time. The reason I don't like denominations is I feel like it's just a way of separating believers. Right? And it's so difficult for me because I still get people contacting me saying, Let's boycott these people. Let's boycott this business. I'm like going, you know, I've read through the pages of Scripture forward and backwards, and I'm not saying that there's not a time to boycott a company. But what I'm, I don't think we should be the people constantly walking around looking for people to blackball. Am I the only one that thinks that? I mean, I just think it's foolish, and it's to the point now to where there's so much turmoil between Christian people. Can you imagine what people on the outside are saying? Can you imagine what they're saying? They're seeing us bickering amongst each other, and they're like, why would I want that? I've got that now. I don't want to go to church and get that. This is what Paul was trying to stop from happening. Well, it made it perfect for, the, for these false apostles because what they did was what's happening now. They were pitting people against each other. They were lying about their spirituality and pitting people against each other. So it was a difficult, difficult time. 
now let's move on. Uh, verse 29. He says, Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. Underscore that. Verse 31. God the Father uh, of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise, knows I am not lying. When I was in Damascus, the governor uh, under King Aretas kept guards at the city gates to catch me. I had to be lowered in a basket through a window uh, in the city wall to escape from him. So Paul finishes up this section, and this is a powerful section. He finishes up by recounting his connection with the people he ministered to, right? Uh, In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul said that the body of Christ should function like a real body. Okay, look at this, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. It says, and if one member suffers, all the members what? Suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So he's saying if one person suffers, we should all come alongside them and suffer with them. We shouldn't look at them and go, wow, stinks to be you. Or say, I wonder what happened. What did they do wrong that they're suffering? You ever hear people do that? Can you imagine, if they would have known the Apostle Paul, they would have had to think he was one heck of a heathen because things were always going on in that man's life. But there's some people who just won't come alongside. He's saying, as the body of Christ, if one suffers, we should suffer with them. If one is honored, we should be honored with them. We should act like a real body. And Paul also basically said that because of his connections, he felt what they felt. He mentions, uh, he mentions weaknesses a lot. Now, you'll notice in his writings, I can't, I can't even count how many times he discusses his weaknesses. Time and time again, he discusses his weaknesses. But here he says he boasts in those weaknesses. Now, why would he boast in those weaknesses? Because through our weaknesses, God's strength is revealed. All right? When something big happens in the life of someone that comes across as weak, they know it's God. Listen, before I was saved, everybody here knows my story. I don't need to share it. But before I was saved, I had a problem with substance abuse. I did. Right? And people ask me, I've had countless people ask me, why do you share that? Why do you tell people that you had that issue? And I say, because they've got to know that God can change lives. Even people who have addictions can be saved. People who struggle can be delivered. It doesn't matter what they struggle with. God can reach down and pick you up and make you over new. So when people know about my past, I'm not saying, hey, if you want to have a great life, kids, go out and be a drunk and do drugs. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying... When you get tricked into that lifestyle and you get pulled into that lifestyle, sometimes you feel hopeless. When you're struggling, sometimes you feel hopeless. I can remember telling my wife, I don't think I can be saved. And she looked at me with that wife look. You guys know what I'm talking about, husbands? The wife look, that you're an idiot look in a loving Jesus type way. Look, Steph's going, oh yeah. Well, she looked at me and she goes, what? And I said, I don't think I can be saved. I think I'm just doomed to go to hell. I'll never forget, we were driving to my pizza and we had this conversation. And she goes, everybody can be saved if they'll believe. I said, not me. She's like, why? I said, if you know the things I've done, and there's things you don't know. I said, but I was raised to believe that you had to beg and plead and crawl on the ground and try to convince God that you were sorry before he would forgive you, right? So I started looking at the work of my life. <laughs> at the accomplishments of my life that all involved alcohol and drugs. And I'm going, there's not enough time left for me to make up for all that. You know, that's all I've ever done. 
I really believed with all my heart that I couldn't be saved. And when I stopped at that little church that night I told you guys about, I stopped at this little church, and I wish I knew why I stopped there. I'm glad I did. But I remember driving by thinking, why are they having church on a Tuesday night? What is wrong with those wackos as I'm pulling in? <laughs> I don't know why I pulled in. I was wearing my softball jersey when I went in there, covered in dirt. And I went in and sat in the very back. I've said this a million times behind the lady with the huge hair, hoping they wouldn't see me. And this guy started talking like no preacher I'd ever heard before. And he was, uh, he was actually coming up from a college he was teaching at in, in Kentucky. But he, he started preaching, and he started talking about how it doesn't matter what you've done. It's about what you believe. He started talking about faith alone. I'd never heard that before. I had no idea that was a thing. And he kept talking, and he said, he said something that caught my attention. He said, you realize that you could walk in here an alcoholic, a drug addict. You could walk in here abusive. You could walk in here being a dredge of humanity. And if you can exercise faith, you can walk out of here a child of God. No one had ever said that to me before. So I left, and I didn't believe uh, that day. I left because I still was under the impression that I couldn't be saved. The next day, I was like, why did I even go to that? How stupid. Why did I even stop there? Then Wednesday night, I went back. And I was sitting behind big hair lady again. And this time, the guy told the story of my life. I mean, it seemed like, literally, this is, this is not a joke. I literally, in my head, said, he knows my dad. I got ratted on. I firmly believed I was getting ratted on. And then I started thinking to myself, that's not possible. No one knew I was going to be driving by this little church house. And he started talking about all the things that I had done. And then he said, if you have any questions, come down front after the service is over. And I'm like, fat chance. No way I'm going down there. I still got my hillbilly posse shirt on. I'm not going down there. That was our softball team. And yes, it was a cool name. And at the end of that service, as I'm saying to myself, I'm not walking down there, I was walking down there. And I sat down with him. And he started asking me questions, and I started asking him questions. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, what are you afraid of? And you don't tell a 21-year-old that they're afraid of something. You know what I mean? You just don't do that. A 20, well, was I 21 or 22? It was just five years ago. I should be able to remember. <laughs> but he goes, what are you afraid of? I said, and it just blurted out of my mouth. I said, going to hell. I mean, that makes sense, right? That's what I was afraid of. And he said, what else? I said, I just don't know if I can be saved. So he took me to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And those of you who know me know that's my life verse. And when I was reading that verse, it changed everything for me. For the first time, I realized that salvation was a gift that anyone could have no matter what you had done. No matter what you had done, salvation was a gift that anybody could have. And I left. I didn't want to pray with him because I don't know why I didn't want to pray. I just didn't want to pray with him. I don't know. And when I was driving home is when I got saved. And I remember saying, God, I don't know how to pray, and I don't know all those words that they were saying, but if don't let me get out of this truck alive and not saved. That was my prayer. And when I, when I believed, I felt this, this burden leave that left me. And, you know, it was the weakest time in my life when I had to admit those things to him and confess who I was. But through that weakness, the strength of God came in and took over. That's why Paul boasts in his weakness. See, unlike the false prophets, 
Paul didn't want any credit. He wanted to appear weak so that when God did big, powerful things, they would have to give God the credit. They would have to, when he would get arrested and have guards all over and they would be delivered miraculously, they had to know it was God. In his weakness, chained up, arrested, the doors are open. Well, they know that's God. When he was beaten 39 times, five times, five times, beaten 39 lashes, and gets up, and the next day, bandaged up, is in another town preaching the gospel. That is the power of God working through his weakness. All the things that he'd put up with, all the people trying to, like the king that was trying to trap him by having someone at every gate, and then they lowered him in a basket to get him out of the city. Writing books that we are still studying, letters that we are still studying, from a prison cell chained to two guards. People had to realize that that strength was not his own, but God's. So he was saying, listen, if you want to brag, I'll brag. Everything good that's happened in my life has been because of God. And I brag in the fact that I'm too weak to do any of it. God has done it all through me. Everything you've seen done, God has done through me. So, you know, here's the thing. Trusting God in our weaknesses is actually the perfect recipe for getting closer to God. Right? Listen to 2 Corinthians 12.10. Uh, this is a lesson we're going to be on next week. It says, Therefore I am well content with, with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How many of us, listen to this list again. I'm content with weaknesses, with insults. How many people, when we're insulted, are okay with it? Right? He said he's content with it. He's content with distresses. I dare anybody in here to say they're content with distresses. Because I'm telling you what, am I the only one that goes straight up baby when things go wrong? Be honest. Does anybody else hear that way? Have you ever said to yourself, Seriously, God, again, why doesn't it happen to that guy? You know, has anybody ever said that? <laughs> Good. I love misery having company. But <laughs> when things happen to me, sometimes I, I'm a big baby about it. He's saying it's okay. With persecutions, I have never been persecuted and walked away from it going, that was awesome. <laughs> that has never happened to me. As a matter of fact, I have to combat in my head what I'd like to do to those people that talk to me like that. I don't, but it crosses my mind. Just saying. With difficulties, how many people do you see excited about difficulties in their life? But here's where he sums it all up. He said, I'm willing to put up with all those things for Christ's sake. Meaning, do what you want to me. If in those moments of weakness, if in those moments where I'm falling apart, people get to see God move through a weak and broken man, then I'm content with it. I'll be weak and I'll be broken. I'm content with it. Because when I am weak, then I'm strong because that's when God is using me and getting all the glory and all the credit. And that's when he's magnified and people will seek him out. That is so, so powerful. I better quit. I'm going to have to preach on that next week. But anyway... When somebody gets saved, here's my suggestion to you, and I'll close with this. When somebody gets saved, the biggest mistake you can make is to hide your past. It's the biggest mistake you can make. Don't be ashamed of your past. 
I'm not proud of the things I did. Don't take me wrong. I'm not applying for any loser medals, right? I'm not proud of the things I did. But I'm also not going to hide them. Because we all have a story, a story that's laden in weakness that will display the strength of God. We all have that. If you are an addict, that is a story that's very special to people who are struggling with addiction. If you were abusive, if, if you were you know, a thief, if you were a criminal, whatever it is, all sin is sin. That's something you shouldn't be ashamed of. That's a part of your story in weakness that turned into strength. It's so powerful because so many people don't believe they have a chance. They don't believe that they're good enough. They don't believe that they deserve it, and they don't. But remember, that's a part of your story that there's other people out there who have that same story who need the hope that your story's ending brings. They need that. They need to know, yes, I'm an addict. I've been in and out of jail. So is that guy, and now he's saved. Now he's got a job, and he's in church, and he's, and he's reading his Bible, and he's not acting the way he used to. They need to see that, right? But we get it in our minds that our Christian buddy, I don't care what Christian people think about me. You're already going to heaven. We can fight about it there, right? I'm worried about what they think, the people in the world who still need Jesus. And they need to know that in our weakness, in the most difficult times in our life, is when God shows off how strong he is. And that's something I think more Christians need to embrace. We have a story that brings hope to somebody unless you hide it. Paul never did. Paul was open about every struggle he had. And because of that, in his weakness, he was probably the strongest apostle to ever walk across the pages of Scripture. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you would please bow your head. This is your first time we always give an invitation. If you would like me to pray for you, I don't need to know why. Maybe you want to get closer to Jesus. Maybe there's something in your life. That I don't need to know, but I do want to pray for you. Just make eye contact and hit your head right. Bless those people. Right back down. Bless those people. And I, I do pray for these faces. Bless those people. Because I'm telling you, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know that God is concerned and wants to be involved. If you're watching or listening online, I'll be praying for you also. But believers, listen, the time is short. I really believe that. But even if it isn't, we have a job to do, and it begins with embracing the story of our life and the power of God moving through it and sharing it. Can you imagine how we could change even this town if believers got serious about showing God's power through their weakness? Can you imagine? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your love, and especially for your grace. God, we know there's nothing we can do to deserve heaven. We can't uh, do acts of righteousness. We can't trade anything. We can't make promises. But we can trust in your son. And your word says if we trust in Jesus as the author of our eternal life, we believe that what he did was enough to guarantee eternal life for each one of us. Your word promises they'll have it. And it sounds so easy, God, but I know you wanted it that way because we are sinful people. If it were hard, we wouldn't pursue it. So I just pray if there's someone that doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, just remove it. Let them realize that the way Jesus died with his arms open is how he still stands ready to embrace anyone who will believe. And if they make that decision, I just pray they contact us. But for those of us who are believers, God, 
Let us remember back to when we were first seeking. Let us remember what it felt like to be set free and give us a passion to share that with people. Take the judgment out of us, that desire to separate. Take that out of us. Let us love everybody like you do so that when we speak, people will hear you. We just pray, God, as we leave here, that you would keep us safe and let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.